I'm known for my emphatic hand gestures, according to the New York Times. And so at one point, I like grabbed him by the arm like I grab a patient when I'm really trying to connect. (laughs) And then I froze because everyone in the room looked horrified. And and I went, oh my God. And I reprimand myself out loud. I go, don't touch the governor. Dr. Amy Acton, MD, MPH, is a licensed physician in preventative medicine and public health with over 30 years of experience in executive leadership, philanthropy, public service, teaching, and advocacy. Among her many honors, Dr. Acton received the JFK Library Profile in COVID Courage Award for her leadership as director of the Ohio Department of Health during the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic. She was recently named one of USA Today's Women of the Year. Dr. Acton is currently the president and CEO of Rapid5, a newly established public-private partnership serving Columbus and the Central Ohio region. Acton lives in Bexley with her husband, Eric, who has coached and taught at Bexley City Schools since 1987. This podcast was a real treat for me. I have admired Amy, watched her on TV like many of you, and taken great comfort in her way of being. And to really get a chance to hear her story, I think a story that not many people know, and her path to the work that she's doing today and her beliefs around health and humanity was just even more inspiring to hear. I hope you will get as much out of it as I did. It was a real uh, joy for me to have a chance to talk to Amy. All right. Well, we are here today with Amy Acton. Amy, thank you for joining me. It's really an honor to have you. I (laughs) have met you in passing, but not really had a chance to get to know you. And I'm excited to do that. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, good. So tell me, you know, let's start at the beginning. I know a lot of people know you in recent years. You've mm-hmm. been a, a huge part of, of our city and state publicly. And I know you're on to other amazing things that are mm-hmm. a big part of our community here in Columbus. But I don't know if a lot of people really know your uh, your life journey, where it started, and I'd love to share that with our audience. If you don't mind, let's start at the beginning and tell me a little bit about where you were raised and what your family dynamic was and what a young Amy Acton was like. Well, first of all, I just want to acknowledge what you said. I am a very ordinary person who found herself in an extraordinary moment in history which has sort of changed everything, except it's the same person I've always been. Mm -hmm. I think during those days that people got to know me on the press conferences, I wasn't scripted, Mm -hmm. which never happens in politics. Mm -hmm. And my kids would laugh and go, that's just mom. (laughs) (laughs) And the work I've done my whole life has been the same work, and it really does come from my childhood. I grew up in Youngstown, Mm -hmm. Ohio. In the 80s, I graduated in 1984 from high school, just to, I'm 56 now. And it was when the steel mills, like the heyday was over. And there were these beautiful sunsets of pollution and then everything just went dark. Mm -hmm. But in its heyday, Youngstown had been this really amazing city, really invested in great art museums. Warner Brothers was there. There's just all this life. I was born to parents who really weren't quite sure they wanted to have me, 
ended up getting divorced. And I had, after that, a pretty rough childhood up to the age of 12. Mm -hmm. And at the age of 12, it got bad enough that we were finally removed, my brother and I. Mm -hmm. But back then in the days, child neglect, child poverty, still going on as we know, so many kids here in Ohio living Mm -hmm. in poverty. Um, But it really affected me a lot. There were amazing people who would do things like my brother and I would be walking to school on the north side of Youngstown and they would offer us breakfast. Mm -hmm. Um, But there were other adults who you could really watch look the other way or they didn't want their kids Mm. to play with you because you're dirty. Mm -hmm. So it was just a very, you know, I I was just steeped in a lot of stress. Let me just hop in there for a second Mm -hmm. because I'm curious. I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. There's a lot there. There always is. I find, yeah. <laughs> you know, these stories that feel like you said, you know, you're just this normal person, you know, in an extraordinary time. And when it's your own experience, it can often feel very normalized. I right? <laughs> I remember being in my therapist office once and um, I was like, yeah, and then my dad did this and my parents got divorced and, you know, you know, whatever. And she was like, you know that's not normal, right? Right. <laughs> right? You're talking it's very about intellectualized. It, yeah, right. right. And and you've kind of intellectualized it. So let's back up and slow down. The Youngstown thing by itself, this city, this community that was vibrant. And you know, I don't think people know that yeah. part of Youngstown. I think mostly people know what happened. Tell me a little bit about how you remember the experience of watching that change? I think what it was, you know, you're surrounded, first of all, it's super ethnic. Mm. And I'm Jewish by background. My birth mother wasn't, but it was just this mix because it was the melting pot. My grandfather had come there from the old country, you know, lost many relatives in the Holocaust. At the age of 21, when people said goodbye to their mom and got on a boat, and that's the last time you ever saw them. Mm -hmm. So people were caring a lot, you know, from where they came from. And there was the benefit of all those cultures coming together. So in some ways, it was, you know, the food was amazing Mm -hmm. and the exchange was amazing. It was so much, it felt very diverse. And at the same time, you were watching a lot of people be able to work one job in a family and have a little vacation house up on the lake and have cars. And then all of a sudden that retracted. Mm-hmm. So there, there is an overlying psychology to cities mm-hmm. and a depression. It's, and it's one of the reasons, you know, I'm very passionate. I still try to give back mm-hmm. to Youngstown. So I was in that, but it was also a place with great beauty. I know you live in Buxley. So, you mm-hmm. know, that old sort of East Coast type of built environment. And then, you know, and this kind of is foreshadowing of what I'm doing now, there are these beautiful parks. Mm. Frederick Law Olmsted did a major Mill Creek Park there. Mm. And so there was a huge investment during the heyday into culture and arts and a university and a life. Mm -hmm. So I did get exposed to other things as well, even being poor, Mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons why I'm so about common good and parks and Mm -hmm. the other kinds of things that we join libraries. Mm -hmm. Big saving grace in my childhood was libraries. Yeah. So then tell me a little bit again about the childhood. So what I'm curious about is the actual experience of that, that you were a young girl, you Mm -hmm. know, just a kid and things are chaotic and not 
safe and and not how they're supposed to be. And and I know a lot of this is like in hindsight, but do you remember kind of what you thought at the time, what the experience was like for you at that time? Well, I I think I was very grown up for being mm-hmm. so young. Sometimes I felt like I've been less grown up from <laughs> like 12 to 24 than I felt <laughs> as a kid. Because I read so much, I would bring a book home from the school library every day. I knew that life wasn't necessarily supposed to be this way. So mm-hmm. I do think I was able to develop skills and resiliencies, ones I pulled on during the pandemic, no doubt. Mm-hmm. I'm hypervigilant. I know what's going on. I, mm-hmm. I have different skill sets, which can be awful in ordinary life and mm-hmm. can't pick a dress out and <laughs> overwhelmed by ordinary decisions in life. But Mm-hmm. put me in a crisis and you want me on your team in that right. war. And my brother and I, we went without food a lot. There was all sorts of abuse and neglect. We were homeless at one point in the winter and lived in a tent. We moved quite a bit. You know, my mom, I think was a product of the 50s, probably didn't really want to have kids yet, was an artist. And I try to think back, because you know, I don't have a relationship with her since mm-hmm. we were removed. But there's probably strengths, things that are in me that Mm -hmm. came from her. Mm -hmm. But it just got chaotic and she got into relationships that were pretty toxic. And my dad, he had tried to get custody of us. But back then, unless it was just like Thor circumstances, the mother always got custody. Right. And he had his, you know, own issues too. Much more normal and more loving though and Mm -hmm. came from a family that I could later on in life connect with. Mm -hmm. But... I think it must have been hard for him to watch his kids go through stuff that he couldn't control. I think of that a lot as a parent. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so we navigated the streets. And again, it was a different time because kids did roam free and weren't in overly scheduled things. But we lived in a basement one whole summer, like didn't see daylight. We had extreme Mm -hmm. circumstances. And it's strange when you're a kid like that, you have such loyalty to your parents too. You love them. And again, mm-hmm. you know, we've, we've talked about mental health. I mean, I've done as much work as I can to mm-hmm. process this in my adult life mm-hmm. and try to understand it. And I'm a doctor as well. But again, mm-hmm. to understand it in a feeling way, like mm-hmm. you're saying experience versus an intellectual way is very different. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you ever take away the lens or the feeling states. Like they're there. Like I mm-hmm. have to process that alongside of ordinary life still. Sure. But you do become a little more at peace or understand yourself. Yeah, I'm kind of curious. I've often thought about this myself. And and one of the things that I've come to believe is that mm-hmm. we have the ability to use our life and the experience to learn from and then to create from and to serve other people. It's often not seen that way. And a lot of times people get stuck when they've had hardship Mm -hmm. and they attach to it, repeat it, identify with it, are victimized by it. And it can really change the trajectory of your life. In your case, it sounds like you've really used it to serve and to stand on and create from and to help others. And, And I know that's true. But I'm wondering, you know, this idea of growing up fast and being kind of an adult as a kid, I can relate to that. I felt Mm -hmm. like that was my experience too. And over the years, 
you know, people will say you're wise beyond your years or you're so mature or, you know, whatever, things like that. And I've wondered how much of that really was who I was to begin with. Somebody that was sensitive and thoughtful and caring. It was kind of potentially how I came into the world and then Mm -hmm. also formed by the life experience. And so I'm just kind of curious to hear your thoughts as, Mm -hmm. you know, you think about Mm -hmm. being this sort of adult child, you know, how much of that was circumstantial Mm -hmm. as you look at yourself today, how much of that, you know, is created from that time and Mm -hmm. how much of it maybe is just who you always were and what you were meant to be to begin with. You know, we all know how hard that is to tease out. I can say as being a mother of three children, I could tell you things they were doing in utero that just totally still match up to me. Yeah. You know, they're the very right. different temperaments as you're carrying them. Right. And you see that there's just essences there all along. And you do wonder, you know, the whole field of epigenetics and mm-hmm. all these things like what memories are, you know, we don't, there's so much we don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And, how the experiences of people who have gone before us are being passed on, mm-hmm. both environmentally, but you know, you have to wonder about mm-hmm. what gets coded in us. Mm-hmm. And so I do think I've always, I feel pretty much the same person mm-hmm. that I always did from my mm-hmm. earliest memories. Mm-hmm. And, but definitely when you say the repeating part, I see patterns. For better or worse, it's just being aware of them Mm because then you can use that information or just notice, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm feeling this. And my teams who have worked with me have really helped me trust my gut a lot more. I think as a kid, I had really good gut Mm -hmm. intuitions Mm -hmm. that were honed. And in the pandemic, you know, and someday I'll be telling the whole story of it. It's not been the right time to tell it all, but I, I was able to figure things out and intuit things. I think that they're just not, it's not all your thinking brain or your emotional or your soulful, like sort of heart gut. It's Mm -hmm. all like one axis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there are things that are not verbal or not even logical sometimes that you can pick up on. Mm -hmm. And I think that all must have been there. But I still, I'm plagued by things that I think are probably weaknesses. You know, when I will always long for safety and there's probably not enough safety in the world. And Mm -hmm. there are certain things that I'll, sort of always probably carry mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that will just be hurts or disappointments or wounds that, mm-hmm. and no one, we know no one goes through this unscathed right. and doesn't wrestle with these That's things. Right. That's right. Okay. So tell me what happens, you know, mm-hmm. you're homeless and 12 and your brother yeah. and you are walking around. I mean, how do you then move through your schooling and teenage years and eventually get to college? Fill me in on that part of your life. So a lot of times people want to know when I wanted to be a doctor. But when I was eight, somewhere in that, my brother and I, my mom went on a trip to California with someone and then broke up when we were driving back and our car broke down. So she put us on like Greyhound buses and we were like eight and five. (laughs) And then we had to go switch buses in Chicago or do just do crazy Mm. things. Mm. And when I got to her parents' house, ended up having a bad appendicitis attack and my appendix ruptured and I was hospitalized for 10 days and I fell in love with just like the nurturing and the caring Mm. of the doctors and nurses. So I think that's when 
And somehow through books back then, there seemed to be like 10 careers you can pick from. We all know there's 10,000 job descriptions mm-hmm. now, but mm-hmm. you know, there's a doctor, nurse, a fireman. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, I know I can be anything I want to be. So somehow I locked on that. Mm-hmm. And then I learned about the six-year BSMD program. Ohio had, as many states did, an accelerated program, all the same hours, but you go all year round. Mm-hmm. And they compacted because there was a shortage of doctors. And so I set my sights on that even before I was removed. And being removed, that was foreshadowing for my public health career. Because I still thought there was like one kind of doctor, mm-hmm. like a guy with white hair and a white coat. But I had no idea of specialties. I had nobody telling mm-hmm. me what this was like. But I sort of imagine myself in that role. Um, ultimately, fast forward, I'm in preventive medicine, but preventive medicine is about population as your patient. Mm-hmm. All, you know, I've worked on youth homelessness, so all homeless youth or mm-hmm. all kids you need immunized or all women in a maternal and child health and mortality setting, or in this most recent case, 11.7 million patients is mm-hmm. Ohio. But it began back then. It's all about these social determinants of health. And when I got removed from the school I was in to my new school, which would be more like a Bexley, Mm -hmm. um, very college bound, you know. Mm -hmm. This is middle school? This would be seventh grade. Okay, yeah. Walked in the door, of course, didn't tell anybody about my background. Okay, Mm -hmm. so I'm living like this whole new world, which Mm -hmm. I'm trying to adapt to how people function and act when I wasn't from that kind of place. But just that change, like there were kids that were just as smart and as nice from my old school, but their lives went completely different trajectories. So I get pulled out, which is like mm. this blessing, mm-hmm. plunked into this more functional school environment and stay there for a complete set of years through high school. Mm-hmm. And you start to realize that by the luck of the draw, these things mm-hmm. greatly change your trajectory. It's amazing. And that's yeah. that's that's my whole passion in mm-hmm. medicine. And so I went to this new school and I just tried to blend in. You know, I just tried to do everything right and learn how to adapt. You know, we still weren't wealthy. We lived in an apartment. My brother and I shared a bedroom, but it was in this wealthier neighborhood. So I got to have exposure to a lot. Ultimately, did get in that very, it was a very competitive program. So I went straight to med school out of high school. Now, sorry, let me just jump in. So, you, did you know, you knew about this program? Like, yeah. at, like at, in seventh grade, you knew about yeah. this? Wow. Because it had been getting some press, like in the news, and I'd heard about it. Uh huh. Well, I, I think that's fascinating that there was something that caught your attention at that yeah. age. I mean, I, I still don't know exactly what I want to do, you know, but you obviously had a calling and this idea of being plucked out and the luck in that, is that how you see it? Does it feel bigger than that? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that feels bigger than luck to me. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Well, it was even more complicated than that. And I am a very spiritual person in a, like have studied all world religions, certainly have studied Judaism, and that sense of the spirit or soul is something that's very much a part of that time and what I do. But I also told the truth. Mm -hmm. So there was a moment where I had a decision to make. And I think part of being in those dysfunctional things is that you protect your parents. Mm -hmm. But things got so bad that finally, one day, I said some truth. And then that led Mm -hmm. me to a police department. That led to a Mm -hmm. whole grand jury. And that led 
And, you know, that was a very pivotal point in my life. I mean, I have very visceral memories of like walking into this courtroom and my shoes squeaking on the floor and Mm -hmm. like, you know, having to be grilled hours on end. Mm. And this very scary guy who my mother had married, they had to like hold him back from like jumping out at me. So, Mm. you know, it was just this, it's this Mm. ugly situation. And as a kid, you know, trying to, tell that truth, but still wanting to protect my mother too. Mm-hmm. There's a very famous scene in my life where I went to give my mom a kiss. They'd been arrested and were out on bond. And I went to give my mother a kiss and she just turned her face away. Mm. That's the last time I saw her. Wow. And Jeez. I know. And then they skipped town on bail. And back then when you did that, you got across state lines. There was no, mm-hmm. no follow-up. Amy, it's so sad. You know, <laughs> it, it is sad. It, it, and it, it happens all over. Yeah, you know, I mean, unfortunately. You, you turn into this phenomenal success, but mm-hmm. like, I don't know. I mean, this is why I like having mm-hmm. these conversations because I don't know if people know that part, you know? Yeah. People see you as so inspiring and collected and calm <laughs> and compassionate, but this sadness, I mean, mm-hmm. that it just strikes me, you know? And you mentioned having done a lot of work. And maybe you would go out of order here a little bit. It's just kind of what, what's coming to me is maybe you can talk about that. I mean, yeah. how have you processed mm-hmm. that sadness? And I don't assume that it's like ever gone, gone right? <laughs> right? You know, I mean, right. this is a thing, right? Yeah. You know, I see it in being with you right now. Mm-hmm. But you've done work to be able to be a highly functioning, wonderful member of the community, mother, wife, family member, whatever else, friend. How did you do that? What worked for you? What is your practice? Well, I would say it's ever ongoing. I'm not at all a perfect friend or mother, but I've given it my whole heart and soul. Like I've always given it my very best. I've often felt like, for instance, you know, I did end up going to med school and ultimately um, those were very hard years. I had to work like three jobs while I was putting myself through med school. Ended up in New York City in 1990 at Albert Einstein for this very competitive triple board program, I couldn't decide whether I wanted to do peds or child psychiatry. So I wanted to give back and I wanted to give back to kids. This was before I discovered preventive medicine. And I was in the Bronx and unbeknownst to me, like it was like the most intense moment of the crack cocaine epidemic. So half of the kids in my peds practice were going to be dead by the age of three from contracting AIDS in utero. And so even though I had grown up in these really rough circumstances, at that point, I had not seen suffering on the scale I saw in New York City at that time, Mm -hmm. where there would be whole rooms full of incubators of babies with like nobody there. Like if Mm. you have a premature baby or your children's here, there's like nurses and doctors Mm -hmm. and parents and people surrounding each incubator. And these were just like babies laying around in a room. And it was just, it was Mm. so devastating. Mm. And that was the first time I think it had been building, but that was the first time I actually, I had a panic attack. There was this day where I kept going, like I couldn't breathe, but I didn't know what it was because Mm -hmm. it was so painful to watch like this much suffering. Mm -hmm. And then I would get so upset. I would run downstairs to the ER to talk to someone down there. 
and then I'd feel better, but I didn't realize I'm like blowing off CO2, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, but it was the first time I think I couldn't just put my head around it and keep going. Mm-hmm. And I really struggled seeing that. Ultimately ended up moving to Columbus to Children's Hospital here. And it was there that I had a mentor who introduced me to this whole other field I didn't know existed called preventive medicine. Mm-hmm. And I say all this to say, because this is really important for people to understand. When I went to med school, it was all sick care. Mm-hmm. It wasn't healthcare that you learn. And I remember even being in med school and they gave the World Health Organization definition of health. And it was a complete state of physical, emotional, and social well-being, mm-hmm. not merely the absence of disease. Mm. And that was just like mind-boggling yeah. to me but didn't know what to make of that. And I'd always gravitated more toward the behavioral, the integration of these systems. Mm -hmm. So then I learned that, you know, we gained 30 years life expectancy in the last century. So from when my grandfather was born in 1900, you were expected to live to on average 48. Mm -hmm. He lived to 84. What happened in one century? Because that was like Thoreau lived to on Walden Pond, 48 years old. So your age right right right. now. And that's your whole life expectancy. And it turns out that only five of those years are due to all the high-tech medical things we do. Mm -hmm. Like 25 of the years that we gained Mm. were due to clean water, safe food, child Mm. labor laws. All Mm. of these like goes on and on. All these things that you can only solve collectively as a society. And they're not in our individual control. Right. And they're not honored. People, and I don't want to discredit the medical system. Right. But oftentimes in our society and in medicine, people don't connect those dots. They believe in diagnose, treat, medicate. And it seems to be an epidemic by itself in that there's just like not time, right? They don't have time. You talk about the babies laying around. In some ways, it's still like that in that there's a waiting room full of patients and they need to be seen. And so it's, you know, not, we're not really getting at the bigger problem here, you know, which is, which is a collective, a community. It's, it's the integrated part, right? right? It's not just about the symptom. It's about the food and the water and the love and the environment and, you know, the nature. And you're seeing this. You're, you're learning this. Yeah, you know? I was, that was discovering this field. And I always knew I wanted to get at the cause behind the cause. Like, I didn't want to treat this kid for mm-hmm. three years. I wanted to figure out how to prevent them from ever getting in that place to begin with. And that, that all comes from my childhood, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And not wanting to look the other way at the ugly things. Mm-hmm. So wanting to look it in the eye, not be destroyed by it, by being overwhelmed by it, which there are times I am overwhelmed. You know, I said that to mm-hmm. 11.7 million Ohioans. Like yeah. I feel it too. Yeah. But, and it's also, you just said something about the individual body, like all that, that you're carrying, the, the emotional, mm-hmm. the physical, it's all one system. Yeah. And now we know that being out in nature and smelling sap actually changes your neurochemistry. Mm-hmm. Feelings of awe, feelings of wonder mm. are healing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it should be about healing and there's an art to medicine, whether you're doing it at the individual patient level, but of course, our, the business of medicine. And again, the many, many great things that happened with science and the white-coated scientists of the 50s mm-hmm. 
being able to have immunization so every mother didn't have to worry about their kid going to play in the spring and getting polio and mm-hmm. being on an iron lung. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, though, when we actually prevent things, when we do a killer job and we knock it out of the park, you don't see what we prevented. Yeah, right. And therefore, you grow complacent and forget about it. Right. So we don't. We take so for granted right. that we turn on that tap. But when I've done global health yeah. all over the world, that's not the case. Right. And right. so we're sort of a victim of our successes in that sense. And and you saw all of this play out during the pandemic. Oh yeah. I have a question that keeps coming back to me. I want to just ask you because I'm struck by the fact that you had such a abusive childhood, just not how it's supposed to be. You didn't have what you needed in so many ways and all the ways. And yet, even at the age of 13 and seventh grade, you're thinking about medical school and being a doctor. And as you described just even a little bit that you're now like in competitive programs, right? The top programs. Where did you get the belief that you were smart enough, that you were enough, that you were capable? I mean, especially as a woman where there weren't a lot of role models for what you wanted to do. What was, where did that come from? How did you do that? How did you know that you were smart enough to do the work and to to get to that place? I don't know that I always, always believed it, but I wanted it so badly. Uh So I had this ability to just sort of will, like it's not that I didn't have to work hard at things. My dad, my parents were very bright. I do think there were enough adults. Like I often talk about the random school teacher. I mean, everyone should talk about the random school teachers we shared. My Mm -hmm. husband is an elementary school teacher for 38 years. There were teachers who didn't. I mean, I had teachers who were not nice and not supportive, but... There, there were a few people at a few key times that like help you. But the biggest thing for me were books. I've, I've been asked a lot, my favorite book, I'm always like, it's Charlotte's Web. Mm-hmm. It's like one of my favorite stories from childhood. And I would read it over and over again. But it just, I think being able to see other lives gave me a belief, but you have to believe it. Mm-hmm. Now, I probably clung to this. Mm-hmm. I might have gone a different direction. Like, mm-hmm. I think there are all other parts of myself I ended up exploring, like gardening and cooking that came later in life. Mm-hmm. That things, you know, I read endlessly. I was mm-hmm. influenced by, and during the pandemic, I would throw out, you know, Victor Frankl's book mm-hmm. or Joseph Campbell. Or I'm mm-hmm. throwing mm-hmm. out these allusions to other things mm-hmm. I ultimately got to explore because I was on such a narrow, mm-hmm. being in an accelerated program, and it was always nose to the grindstone. Mm-hmm. And so it's been in later life and probably almost to a fault I need to do even more now, Mm -hmm. but I still drive myself so hard. Mm. Yeah. And I think, you know, what I'm hearing, what you said initially is just the want, Mm -hmm. you know, the want to really tackle these problems and to help people can really drive you. Tell me a little bit, I mean, the audience will probably be angry if we don't spend time talking about the pandemic as, uh, you know, that's how most people know you. I could right. continue this conversation all day. I'm just fascinated in, uh, you know, the journey to that work. But before we do that, I'm curious, I had another guest who you probably know, Beth Weinstock, oh, on yeah. recently, and she was talking about the challenges of being a mother and a physician, right, working and owning a medical practice and trying to 
raise children. Talk a little bit about how that went for you, having your family and your career. Yes. You know, tell me about that experience for you. So being raised in the 80s was this, you could have it all. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think you can have it all. And as I often tell my students, sometimes it's not all at once. I really began to understand this concept of sequencing. Mm -hmm. And for me, in the very early years of having my kids, you just don't know what it's going to feel like till you have them. And when I was in pediatrics, I was supposed to have like two weeks off. Even though you were in pediatrics, there was no part-time back then. And yet we learned all this about breastfeeding and what mm-hmm. you're supposed to do developmentally. And having my son Jake just changed everything for me because it was so important to be a mom. And again, I felt inept a lot of time. I mean, what to expect when you're expecting. I'm like mm-hmm. reading how to be the baby because <laughs> I have no idea. Mm-hmm. I can resuscitate a 24-week yeah. baby, but I don't know. They're slippery. You yeah, know? I remember and when that our, feeling. Right? Oh yeah, when our kids were born, the our doctor said to us as we're leaving the hospital, "I stamped the instructions on his back. Good luck." Right. Yeah. And I remember getting home that first night and like looking through the book, crying, crying, crying. Right, you know, right. what, what do you do when they're crying? You know, oh, yeah. it's you know, and and it's uh, there are no getbacks. Like this right. is eighteen years, and you're like all of a sudden so vulnerable. You yeah. put them in that car, you drive. All of a sudden, every driver is horrible. Yeah, and. Going through that, I ultimately I was working really intensely and I had like childcare and people cleaning my house and stuff. And at the time I've been divorced, so I'm in a second marriage and my husband was also a doctor. And so you're balancing this crazy life and all of a sudden you realize you're not living your life. Other people are living it. Mm-hmm. So one of the hardest decisions I ever made was to back my career down some, mm-hmm. even though I'd been so gun ho. Mm-hmm. It's the best, it was the best thing I ever did. I learned whole new things, got involved in boards and charity mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. got to have some experiences with my kids of seeing what childhood should be. So, mm-hmm. And it took a lot of attention for me because I didn't have role models or people to fall back on. So I was able to slow things down. I remember people saying like, this is going to ruin your career. And mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm glad I trusted my gut. Mm. And again, it did make a trajectory and it did change my income and it but in the end, it, it's been, it was a very rich part of my life. Mm. You know, that said, I did have a divorce and that was another very hard chapter in my life mm-hmm. um, that was very painful and full of things that I probably were parts of childhood mm. playing out, but just was able to stay focused on my kids and just have amazing kids. And Ultimately, I've remarried and have a very good experience of married life. Mm-hmm. And so, so much maturing and it not being perfect and learning and learning and learning mm-hmm. about yourself. Mm-hmm. That journey hasn't ended, yeah, I guess. I just want to say. it ever does. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So tell me, how do you end up in the governor's office? Okay. Yeah. And, so that's a funny story. Yeah. Because yeah, I shouldn't be there. And... <laughs> Uh, so, you know, my career in public health has taken me from public-private partnerships to global health. I was a professor at OSU right before I got a very strange call out of the blue. I was working at the Columbus Foundation, um, which I love. It was one of my favorite places because public health is about bringing all these different systems around a table to solve wicked hard problems. And at the time, I just loved it because you can really convene people and 
I was working on youth homelessness, lots of things, but youth homelessness was something I felt was at a tipping point in this community. I learned that kids were not going to shelters. They were preyed upon there. So there were a lot of underlying issues that we were missing in our approach to youth. But I saw these great assets in our community with Huck House and Star House. And Mm -hmm. I knew that if we could just give it a little push over the edge, and we did, we were making this great progress. And for one hour, unbeknownst to me, in a meeting um, was one of the governor's closest confidants. I remember she came like for one hour. I was very impressed by her. Her name's Anna O'Donnell. And then uh, disappeared. So it must have been during the election. Mm-hmm. And so one day out of the blue, I got this little call where Anne's on the phone and she's like, oh, the governor and I are standing here underneath the state house. And we're just wondering if you'll come in and talk to us. And tying this back to our conversation, you know, I walk in this, so I, I'm, I'm not in politics at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I keep joking, I'm the Ted Lasso of politics because I honestly, <laughs> it was the best thing that ever happened. I knew no better mm-hmm. and got a lot done for mm-hmm. that very reason. But mm-hmm. I walked into this room and all these people stood up and the mm-hmm. governor walks in the room. Mm-hmm. Then he sits down at this like little table with this crumpled brown paper bag and he starts to eat his lunch. And it turns out he carries this bag everywhere because mm-hmm. Fran packs this lunch. So every, I mean, <laughs> on airplanes, everywhere, yeah, this lunch bag is there. Mm-hmm. And he said simply to me, tell me about your childhood, mm-hmm. which is what you started with. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, and I think at this time in my life, I've just gotten a little bit more willing to be honest. I was just very, very truthful with him. Mm-hmm. And I didn't wasn't looking for a job. As a matter of fact, I didn't even really completely understand there was a job I thought I could give advice on things he could work on for children. Mm-hmm. So I was very, very honest with him. And at one point, I got so excited in the conversation. I'm known for my emphatic hand gestures, according <laughs> to the New York Times. And so at one point, I like grabbed him by the arm like I grab a patient when I'm really trying to connect. Uh-huh. And then I froze. <laughs> Because everyone in the room looked horrified. And and I went, oh my God. And I reprimand myself out loud. I go, don't touch the governor. (laughs) That's great. And he just got this look on his face. And I remember going at the 30th floor, right? If I'm like scurrying off to the elevator. Uh And I thought, oh, they would never want to put me in front of a camera. (laughs) And that's like a true story. And a half hour later, I get this text. He wants to meet again. And it was a very scary decision for me. I loved my work Mm -hmm. at the Columbus Foundation. And I begged my boss, like, please, this is like the National Guard. I'm going off to war. I just want to... I know that I have a chance to do something for public health. Mm. No one is going to care about this. turned out the governor actually did. It turned out he lost a daughter in a car accident. When she was 21, mm. at the time he was a U.S. senator in Haiti, and he ended up getting very involved. You know, the hardest country on the planet to work in. Ended up meeting Paul Farmer, who's one of my heroes. He's a global health doctor extraordinaire. Just died recently. Mm. Very, very famous man who tackled AIDS in the hardest country in the world. Very similar kind of weird childhood to mm-hmm. Father Tom Hagen, a priest from Princeton, is also there doing this work and. He and his wife started investing in schools. So oddly, most governors don't care. They don't care what party they're in. Public health is not at the top of their radar. Mm -hmm. It's just not what you run for office on. But he actually wanted to change it. He realized that Ohio had some of the worst health outcomes in the country. And so I thought, you know, I don't agree with him on all policies by far. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm going to get in there and just see if there's anything I can do. Mm Yeah, I think that's good for people to hear because I think oftentimes the politics 
are so divisive that it's hard right. for us to see where there's overlap right. and still you know stay in the game and make peace to some extent right. you know at least with the differences and as it pertains to the then pandemic right so now you're in this job right. and and the unthinkable happens and you're called to step up and lead what I'm mostly curious about, because I think, you know, a lot of the mm. Amy Acton story, you know, as it pertains to the pandemic has been watched and seen and talked about. But what I think does get talked about, and I really want to kind of get in there with you and understand, mm -hmm. is this thing that's come up a number of times since we've been talking about just being you and not falling into the trap of, well, you're a doctor or you're a part mm -hmm. of a medical system and now you're a part of a political mm -hmm. environment. Mm -hmm. You didn't change who you were. And that is what people yeah. needed because you were somebody that they could identify with. They could understand, they could relate to, and so they would hear you. They would listen to you and you could help them. Right. And I think that piece is so important. It's so undervalued. People are chasing yeah. the polished package of whatever we've been sold. And that's just not real and it's not what we need. And you showed up right. in that authentic way. And I just want to hear you talk about that, you know, whatever it is that comes to mind. Well, I have to tell you, it was a shock walking in the state house for the first time. Again, the Ted Lasso thing is not a bad analogy because mm -hmm. I didn't know operative world. I mean, I didn't have words even yet. Mm -hmm. And I think in people who come up through politics, they're so steeped in it. It's like the oxygen you breathe and you don't even know anymore. You just do things mm -hmm. because you're steeped in that world. So by just by sheer fact that I wasn't climbing a ladder. This hadn't been my career goal my whole life. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to do my service, my public service. And I also knew that I had lines I wouldn't cross. Mm -hmm. And so that just gave me a very different advantage. And then the governor, again, I was very fortunate because he let me sit in on every budget very early on and find the health in everything that mm -hmm. was going on. Like I got to do things in that first year, even with a very conservative legislature we passed Tobacco 21, I, I negotiated just sitting down with no script at all, was in a room with 88 counties and negotiated the opiate settlement so mm -hmm. that we would endow that, bringing things I'd learned elsewhere, not what you would normally do in politics. We created an endowment mm -hmm. because the tobacco settlement, we knew that it when the rainy days came, it got raided and it didn't go to prevention. We actually, as opiates, were on the table. We were able to move that into a foundation so it lasts in perpetuity for Ohioans. Mm -hmm. We were solving things different. We had hugely Janela outbreak, all these crises that were going on. So we're a year in and I'm finally just getting my sort of legs under me like this is what this world is. Mm -hmm. And I heard right at the end of December, beginning of January of 2020, a woman from the World Health Organization talking about weird pneumonia in Wuhan. Mm. And it was her voice. So this goes back to my childhood. Like I pick up on things mm -hmm. probably that people don't mm -hmm. do. And there was something in her voice that just stood out to me. I was flying back from visiting my two boys that live in California. 
And I, I was watching now the stories of Wuhan were just beginning mm-hmm. early January. And I stood there in the airport and there were all these universities from Ohio holding up signs for students coming back from mm-hmm. the break. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, wow. Like people are mm-hmm. taking an infectious disease. And if it's in, in Asia right now, it might be coming back with people. So I started to dig my team into it. Mm-hmm. I give us a lot of credit. We got out ahead of way ahead on this. And then it turned out that I was a representative for the entire Midwest to the CDC through a group called ASTO. And I ended up being right at the end of February, I ended up in the White House with Mick Mulvaney. I mean, this again, these are rooms I never thought I would sit in. They knew me from other work I had done on a uranium enrichment plant here. I was sitting in a room with some of the best epidemiologists and virologists in the world. And you're right there on that precipice. Mm-hmm. The stock market crashed for the second time. We had done these pandemic drills with the, I had a bag that the governor's team, but they let me and we did these drills. Ohio was way out ahead. We had our whole cabinet do exercises in early February. Mm-hmm. But I'm sitting there in this room and there's this one particular gentleman who's worked for like eight presidents and he was shaking. Mm. And I'm like, that's a, it's it. Like yeah. He's seeing things that he has not seen before. This is the real deal. Yeah. And it went around the room and everyone in the room had to say something of advice. And it got to me and everyone had said all the virology stuff. And I, I looked Mick Mulvaney in the eye and I said, I think this is the higher angels moment. Like, please tell the president, this mm-hmm. is the FDR mm-hmm. Churchill moment. Like we're at war mm-hmm. with a common enemy. I used to teach in my public health classes, if only we were invaded by aliens, Mm -hmm. we'd all of a sudden realize we're all on the same team. Mm -hmm. There's this concept of one health that animal health, human health, and the environment are one ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And a zoonotic disease is a classic example of how those things all affect each other. And I said, this is the higher angels moment. I remember McMulvaney Mm -hmm. like putting his head Mm -hmm. in his hands. Mm -hmm. He was gone two weeks later Mm -hmm. and um, removed. Mm -hmm. And But I remember getting on a plane. We came back. We went to Metro Health in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. We toured this infectious disease unit. The governor and I came out and the press is sitting there and the whole world is right on that edge. It was the weekend we made the Arnold Classic decision. Yeah, I remember, yeah. And I just said this promise. Again, I'm not media trained. And Mm -hmm. again, to the governor's credit and his team, I was never, ever scripted, mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. And I just looked at the press and I just said, because I, like everyone else, just wanted the truth. Yeah. And I said, we will tell you what we know as we know. I just made this promise and the yeah. governor did too. Yeah. And then we came out at two o'clock the next day on the Ohio News Network. I thought to myself, I comforted myself going... I don't know what I'm doing on the cameras and everything, mm-hmm. but no one will watch this. It's mm-hmm. the Ohio News Network at 2 p.m. <laughs> no one's going to watch this. And we just started telling the truth. The second we told the truth, a bunch of scientists who had gone underground, that has been written about in Michael Lewis's book, and mm-hmm. I'll tell someday after testifying, tell more stories. The best people in the world started coming to us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There were serendipities. Mm-hmm. I hired a communications director uh, she started four days before the things really hit. We made that tough Arnold decision, mm-hmm. best decision mm-hmm. ever, but a very, very hard one to mm-hmm. make. 50 million loss in the economy mm-hmm. and, and followed with the sweet 16 and just mm-hmm. endless stories. I could tell you of hard decisions made thoroughly with all the best minds around the table, grinding it mm-hmm. out. I mean, these were, nothing was flip. It was all mm-hmm. hard got, but 
her brother, it turns out the woman I hire, her brother had gone to my med school here in Ohio and had helped George W. Bush write the pandemic playbook. Wow. So what people don't know is after 9-11, they realized that the gravest security risks to this country, mm-hmm. put all the death and disease aside, security risk is either a biologic weapon or a pandemic. Mm-hmm. It unmoors everything, mm-hmm. as we've now seen, mm-hmm. from the supply chains on. Mm-hmm. We couldn't even get amoxicillin. Mm-hmm. You couldn't get a 3M mask. You couldn't make it in this country because we didn't have the machine that can make the inner layer in this country. Mm-hmm. Hospitals were outbidding hospitals. Countries were stealing our stuff at port. Mm-hmm. Behind the press conferences was running a war mm-hmm. that was supposed to be run at the federal level, mm-hmm. according to this playbook, mm-hmm. that was not being implemented. Right. And so all of a sudden, it was on every governor to run the war. Mm-hmm. And it turned out Rajiv and Kaya, her brother, I was able to call and that led me to Carter Mecker, which led me to this whole group of scientists called Red Dawn. And I could get from the very best minds mm-hmm. the thinking behind the playbook. Mm-hmm. And that's what we were executing. It was mm-hmm. the emergency break you hope you never have to pull. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to have all this wraparound for business mm-hmm. and you know how to keep because there's always cascading consequences. Mm-hmm. But what people don't know that when at that beginning in March, if you went in the hospital, you know, chances of mortality were like 25%. Mm. By the time June came around, even three months later, it had dropped down to five. Still horrible. Mm -hmm. But that bit of time allowed the world to start to figure out Mm. what to do. You know, what I'm struck by and, you know, having asked that question and hearing your answer is... I think so much that people didn't see. There's so much that you went through and your team went through. And, you know, you're a human being, right? (laughs) Right. With with like, (laughs) you know, a normal human being who has a finite amount of energy and a family and other things, you know, your own history and past and trauma and, um, Nobody really knows. I didn't know the extent of groups like Red Dawn and the people you're talking to from around the world, the history going back to Bush and the politics, the the whole thing. I mean, there's so much there. What people saw was the humanity in you, the normalcy in you, right? You somehow were able to show up and lead with incredible strength, mm-hmm. but it was sort of masked in just like truth and vulnerability and normalcy. Right. You know, that's the genius of it all. You might not like that word, you know, to describe yourself, but yeah. it is brilliance. It's genius and it's in a different way than I think people think they're supposed to be. That a somebody should stand up in front of a camera with a script and get every word right and sound intelligent and right. And that's not what you were, even though you had all that behind you. Right. You know, I don't know. I'm not even sure there's a question there, but I'm just moved in a different way. You know, you were inspiring to so many people, you know, the words, I mean, to talk about, you know, Victor Frankl and Joseph Campbell. I mean, you know, (laughs) at a time like that, those are not, things that you know, people, people talk do. about hero's journey, <laughs> right, you, know? Right. I, you know, any thoughts on it? So all of this exploring and dabbling we do in life, it all came, there was a morning where I literally had this feeling 
that everything that had ever happened in my life, like good and bad, mm. was exactly what I needed. Mm. And it was a very, like, it was like mm. this. It was like, because I would get up at four so I could have quiet time yeah. because the calls would start at six with all the hospital CEOs. Mm. And it was like, when you're in this position, you just don't want anyone to die. Like, yeah. I felt like every single Highland was my responsibility. And I also knew that there was no amount of orders or anything you would do that would flatten the curve. The only way you can do it is by each of us helping one another. Yeah. And so my goal, you know, the New York Times studied seven weeks of our press conferences. They wrote in May of 2020, this article, the leader we wish we all had. Mm. I'm honored and I wish, you know, to say I was as deliberate as they did this linguistic style analysis yes. of looking at it. Another Kenyan professor said we created a ritualized holding space, which is what we did. Like when yeah. on earth does everyone all show up in one space like that? Mm -hmm. But what I felt in the beginning was this feeling of we've got to pull everyone up on the life raft. Mm -hmm. And so I've got to give people the information they need to check in on their neighbors who's older, mm -hmm. to watch the nurse who has to work's child. To I was trying to come up with things people could do. And they mm -hmm. said, we're brutally honest, um, vulnerable, and empowered people. Mm. And in many conversations since, there's these crisis communication seeds, be clear, concise, credible, consistent, mm -hmm. blah. But what I think we're missing right now and our leaders were really, and again, this pandemic is not, these times of disruption and amoring are not over. Right. And they won't be over for no. a while. Yeah. And there are pearls in it because we're learning things, we're unmasking things that were already going on, you know, mm -hmm. the social movements we've seen. It's not all bad. Out of this disruption often comes the next great thing. And I see many, many wins and opportunities if we choose to be conscious moving forward out of this. But I think a time like this really calls for leaders, that higher angels piece. I don't know why I'm just so grateful it came to me, but I do think. We need narratives and storytellers and people who make meaning out of all we're enduring. Mm -hmm. And it's that's that type of leader. It's not very easy to be. It was easy for me because I didn't know better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There was a point at which I couldn't sign my name. You know, I stepped down when I felt I mm -hmm. could no longer honor what I believe. Mm -hmm. And through pressure that was being put on the legislature, people don't know that. Real pressure from the Speaker of the House, you probably know, you know, mm -hmm. January 6th people were in my yard. I had executive yeah, protection 24-7. Yeah. All of that was very real and very ugly. Mm -hmm. But what people also don't know is we have these gigantic mail rooms at the Department of Health and at the governor's office that you could not walk through for things people were making and sending. So mm -hmm. Ohioans came together and flattened the curve. Ryan Vessler did the t-shirt, mm -hmm. Not All Heroes Wear Capes, mm -hmm. to support youth homelessness, something mm -hmm. I cared about. These memes started to spread and Ohioans started to do stuff for one another. Yeah. And it was an amazing thing. The mm. act on love, not hate signs. Uh, the, yeah. I said something about a song that Michael Stipe did, There's No Time for Love Like Now on Colbert. Mm -hmm. Next thing I know, I get a call from Michael Stipe. You know, mm -hmm. I'm just mm -hmm. like, mm. you know, people are longing. Yes. Yeah. And I keep saying, if, if most of us in a pandemic, infectious disease spread is like herd immunity. If most of us do the right thing enough of the time all of us get through. Mm -hmm. 
And just like any other power differential, like bullying, prevention, domestic violence, the bystander matters. And all of us, I think, long, and, and it's really weird because, you know, I, I was asked to run for office after and consider running for office and mm. they were starting to poll me, but the numbers didn't look like a political party. Mm. It was all over the mm. spectrum. Interesting. And so I yeah. do think there are these things that we all hold dear mm-hmm. and we need people to help us mm-hmm. weave us back together a- again. Amen. Yeah. And boy, did you do that and you shined a light on how much that's needed and and how it can be done. We're going to run out of time here. So I wanted to make sure we talk about your current work in Rapid Five. And, oh, and what, I'm, what I'm interested in is going back to your interest in preventative medicine and seeing the importance of clean water and food and right. environment and then through the medical career, through the pandemic, you're seeing, including you know your spiritual practices and your research on religion and mm-hmm. philosophy and spirituality, self-help, I mean, right. mental health, right? You, I think, really are seeing and understanding how interconnected it all is. Mm-hmm. And to me, that becomes very spiritual. Because that's what I believe that, in fact, we are all one, and that, you know, God is a divine intelligence that's not any one person. It's all of us right. connected collectively. And we've become so fractured and we've become so traumatized and so isolated. And it feels yeah. to me like you are using your life, all of it, to try to bring mm-hmm. us back together and doing it in the way that includes all of those things, right? right? And maybe that brings us to rapid five, the nature aspect and the health aspect. But, you know, anything you want to say about that work as we start to wrap up? Well, it was an honor of a lifetime Mm -hmm. to serve the way I did. I would do it forever. It was a privilege to be in that moment. And then what do you do next, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, after you do something like that, and I tried to stay very open. I didn't rush. You know, I did my work on kindness mm-hmm. um, for the Columbus Foundation, was asked to consider running for U.S. Senate, which mm-hmm. I gave my wholehearted, like, quickest look at, but just mm-hmm. couldn't quite yet see. I just don't see myself in, like, operative, like, type world. I couldn't mm-hmm. understand it all yet. I, I understand it a little more now. And then I saw this book. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine, Kirsten Carr, showed me the rapid five vision, which was a process that occurred during the pandemic mm-hmm. where there was this realization that one of the things that we've come out of the pandemic with, one is supply chain is changing and it's bringing a lot of amazing manufacturing and things back. It's a really big moment for our state in so many ways. And I hope we cherish this in the right way. But also... We know we're going to grow in this region by a million people. But, you know, if we grow haphazardly, it's kind of like meh, Mm -hmm. which is the default. Mm -hmm. But during the pandemic, everyone rediscovered nature. Nature, I realized, was this one thing that everyone held in common. It's still common ground. Our Metro Parks attendance went through the roof. Mm -hmm. People were going to that for healing. It was also the safe place. And it's like the one thing that's left that's not partisan. Mm -hmm. So I'd had this whole sense in myself. And then I see this book where they've reimagined that we don't have mountains or oceans here, but we have hidden in plain sight, Mm -hmm. 145 miles waterway, 
green spaces all around it. It was this vision of five design firms for creating the largest integrated park system in the country. But underneath it all, it led with joy and fun and Mm. recreation. But right under it was the social determinants of health. In this book, first of all, 80% of these waterways are in public domain and other cities which are way advanced, like Atlanta, Beltline, Houston, Bayous, all Mm. these places that have activated their waterways. They had to like buy every inch of parcel. And here we are like with Mm. all this in public domain. Mm. But underneath it all, like some of the visions were for undoing redlining, Mm -hmm. reconnecting Mm -hmm. Hanford Village that had been cut by the Bexley Kerr, Mm -hmm. bridges that would reconnect back to Alum Creek, Mm -hmm. those grain silos that are Mm -hmm. eyesores but are too expensive to remove become climbing walls. Mm -hmm. And... All these visions were doing social determinants of health. It was small business creation along the corridors mm-hmm. and an emphasis we have in the community on women-led businesses and minority-led businesses right now. It was rapid transit to take you east to west. It had all these packages, education, outdoor classrooms, aging in place. Like when I looked at it, it was public health. Yeah. There it is. But it's leading. I mean, we joke. Yeah. I'm like, just kayaking. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Don't mind me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, sometimes maybe we have to come at it from a place where people are. You know, that's right. a big part of what we've tried to do here at Gravity. Right. We know that not everybody's going to go do, I don't know, psychedelic assisted treatment or silent right. meditation retreats. But can we catch them here with a little something? a little bit of art or music or culture or meditation or yoga or something that gets people in the door and a kayak, you know, a walk in a park, right? right? It doesn't have to be something. It can be very simple and accessible for everyone. And making it accessible to everyone. So this was all about our punchline is connecting us to nature and one another like never before. And there were art installations and history. And I learned that Alum Creek was the liquid path to freedom because the sycamores glowed at night. Mm-hmm. There's all these things. It's this wayfinding. And before you know it, restaurants want to be mm-hmm. Rapid Five and businesses want right. to be it because right. it's a way of life. Right. And so what we have in this moment, yeah. very unique moment in this region, and I do believe this will wag the whole state, mm-hmm. in this moment of growth, is the exact time we have to claim this nature yes. for generations to come. And that's the goal. Well, that <laughs> is a worthy goal and I hope to be a part of it and <laughs> I support hope you. Will you. Be. Yes, and, and I would <laughs> love to be a part of it. I believe in it. I, I believe in you and thank you. just thank you. You know, oh, thanks for taking the time to be here and thanks for leading our state and so many in the way that you are just naturally. I know it was hard. All of it. It's been, yeah. you know, it's hard. Not yeah. just leading, but life. And right. you have shown up in a big way. And it's very inspiring. And it's important. And I'm excited to see what comes from this. I hope you'll run for office uh, <laughs> and write your book and do all that fun uh-huh. stuff. But I know your mission and aim has always been the same. And however that manifests, I know it will be important and, and right. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Any <laughs> final thoughts? Anything else you want to no. share with the audience? Thank yeah. you for spending this time. I hope we get to talk much more over yeah. the years to come. I look forward to it. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. 
please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.